Well, it is a thrill to be back in Boundless Thursdays. Hope you guys are as excited as I am. No? Okay, we'll keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, yeah, uh, we love to sing God's Word. We love to study God's Word together. We love the fellowship. So um, Thursdays are fun because it's open-ended. We get to hang out afterwards, talk. So um, we're excited to begin that again. Well, last semester, we began a study of 1 John. And so if you're new here, you can see that on the screen, 1 John study. All right, so we started that, and we made it through chapter 3. We've got two chapters left, and Lord willing, we're going to finish it up about halfway through this semester. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John. And I chose this particular letter. Is that echoing pretty bad to you guys? Should I move back or no? Sounds okay? Maybe it's just me. All right, great. Um, Well, uh, last semester I chose this letter because... I thought its central theme was very important for us to study. So those of you who are new, you're exempt from the review, okay? But those of you who are not, or are not new, you are not exempt, okay? What do you think, what do you remember is the theme of 1 John? Okay, assurance, yeah, assurance is the theme, a theme, probably the major theme of 1 John. Yep, the Apostle John wrote this letter to a church that he dearly loved, a church that he had deeply invested in, in a previous period. And these people, these, these believers, had been recently unsettled by a church split. It's probably the easiest way to, to say it. Many in this church had, had recently left the church. And you see that down in chapter 2. And apparently there had arisen within this church a group that had begun to teach something different than what John and the other apostles had taught this flock before. Eventually, this group left the church, and they took people with them. And apparently, they claimed that they were the only ones that had a true relationship with God. So, that's the wrong path they were saying. John, the apostles, that's old news. This is the right path. And so, major church split, and it rattled everybody who had remained in the church, everybody that that didn't follow that, that group, that stayed loyal to John. It rattled them. Questions were lingering in their minds, like, are we really following the right path? Am I really a follower of Christ? How can I be sure? Well, you know, will I really be raised from the dead? Is this really the path of life? Or do they have it? And so this letter, John wrote this letter out of a deep burden to make sure they understood the gospel and that they understood that they're on the right path and there's actually evidence that they're on the right path. So assurance is the, is the theme of this letter for them, but it's not just important for them. It's absolutely vital to, to our church and to every church, especially our college ministry and our career ministry here. So, so why is that? Let's just, let's just look at a few reasons. All right? Why is this important for us? Well, it's important because there's a, la- a lack of assurance is actually common in young believers. All right? A lack of assurance, this, this deep understanding that I belong to Jesus, uh, that is often lacking in young believers. Most of you guys are on the front end of your Christian lives. Some of you are living out from under your parents for the first time. You're still figuring things out. You may feel unsure about your faith. And then this is, not only are you inexperienced, but it's often compounded 
because you're not that mature yet. You're easily ensnared in sin, and then your conscience gets inflamed, and certainty about your relationship with Christ can seem hard to come by. You may not have a ton of clarity about the gospel, depending on kind of where you're coming from, the church background that you, you, you're raised in. And you put all that together, and it means that questions about assurance are very common in this stage of life. And if this describes you, you should be encouraged. Okay, Don't be discouraged. John, his number one goal for you, if he were here, he was, his number one goal for you would be that you gain assurance from a study of this letter. He wants you to experience the deep blessings of assurance, of knowing that you really do have a real relationship with Christ. And so that's reason number one. All right, There's a lack of assurance that's common in young believers generally. And I wanted to study this letter because false assurance abounds in the church today. It abounds in the church. Many today claim to know Christ but they are not interested, they don't demonstrate any of the signs of life that John describes in this letter. They're not interested in obeying the Lord when it gets hard. And their assurance, these people with false assurance, this kind of assurance is based on, typically on something they did. Right? So they prayed a prayer when they were five. Uh, They were baptized. They grew up in church. Their parents were Christians. Their dad was a pastor. Some reduce Christianity to a belief in God and just being moral. And so they think they're right with God because they're not as bad as other people. That's actually very common in Lynchburg. Um, I worked at Starbucks for a number of years, and that was just kind of what cycled through. Everybody kind of claimed Christ, um, but nobody had any clarity on actually who who He is. And so people reduce Christianity to sort of moralism, but the reality is, Lots of these folks have never repented of their inward idolatry of self. Their eyes haven't been opened to the glory of Christ. And what they really love, if you could kind of boil it down, what they really bank their hopes on, what they'll sacrifice for, is not Christ, but it's some other idol. Some other thing that gets them out of bed in the morning, that motivates them in life. They might feel bad about their sin, especially if their sin has consequences, which sin does. But in the end, they really love sin and they don't want to part with it. They haven't been given a new heart with new inclinations. They haven't been given a new power for change. They don't love the church and they yawn at Christ's word. But they go about life thinking that they're saved. And that is extremely dangerous. And the point I'm making here is that this kind of false assurance is all around us. It's at Liberty. It's in the community. It's in many of the churches in our area. So we desperately need to know what the Scriptures actually teach about assurance so that we can have clarity for ourselves and so that we can be instrument of change. We can share that clarity with with our classmates and our peer groups, our roommates, and our families. So, assurance is important, obviously. And that raises another question. How do we get it? Okay, right? If it's that important, if it's that misunderstood, how do we, how do we get it? Well, there are two primary ways that, that John has, has taught us there. If you didn't see the screen just now, do you remember them? Two primary ways that we get assurance. I'll give you a hint. One is foundational, and the other builds on that foundation. Just shout it out. 
Oh, he can read. He said, by believing the word of life, he saw the screen. Yeah, so there's the word of life and the signs of life. So I'll just put it up like this, all right? There's two ways. The first, one's, the first one is absolutely essential. We have to know and believe what John calls the word of life. It's the message, the word, the message that brings life. Any guesses on what that might be? Okay, God is light. Yeah, the message of the gospel. You could kind of just put a, put a big banner of that. The message that brings life, meaning the gospel, the news of what Christ has done for us. In other words, the bedrock of our assurance is completely outside of us. And this is kind of paradoxical when you think about it. The first way that assurance comes to us is when we look away from ourselves to Him, to Christ. It comes when we learn, when we learn of all that He has accomplished for us on the cross. We have to know the true Christ and what He's truly accomplished. When we truly embrace that He is our propitiation, like He talks about in 1 John chapter 2. We truly embrace that, that He is our wrath bearer, the one who bore the wrath that we deserved. That's when assurance comes. When we truly understand that He is our righteousness, that He obeyed for us, that He earned all the blessings of the new covenant in our place, and He provides them freely for His people. Assurance comes when we come to know and believe the great love that He has for us, like John says at the end of this letter. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation. It's not in you fundamentally. It's not in your faith, even though faith is necessary. But it's in the object of your faith. Who is He? And what has He done? And that's where assurance flows. That's the garden from which it grows. That's the foundation. The Word about Christ brings new life with it. Which is why John describes it as the Word of life. That means new inclinations, new power, new hope of resurrection. that wasn't there before. That is the word of life. And the first way we get assurance is by believing it, embracing it, receiving it. But that's not the only way, right? That's the foundation, and it leads to something else. When this new creation life has been implanted in a person through the gospel, there will be signs of it springing up. When something's alive, what happens? It grows. Yep. When something is dead, what happens? It doesn't, doesn't grow, right? Yep. So when we're alive in Christ, we grow. We have His Spirit. And that leads to the, leads to the secondary way that we, that we attain assurance, according to John. Throughout this letter, John describes what we might call these signs of life. And it's, these are all the little evidences that, that someone has been born again. All the evidences that life has occurred. Someone who really knows Christ, John says, will begin to look like Jesus. When we perfect... Far from it. But there will be evidences that a heart change has happened. They'll begin to live like Him. It won't be perfect, but they'll be humble. They won't try to hide their sin, but they'll confess it. And one of the greatest evidences that a person has known their Lord is their love for God's people. Their love for God's people. Their love for the church. Their commitment to the church. And John says when we see a pattern of these things in our lives, our assurance grows. It confirms that we really are alive. So then, bringing these things together, the word of life, the gospel, is foundational. We don't have any hope in ourselves. Um, that's the freeing good news of the gospel. If we're going to be saved, 
If we're going to have life, it must come from outside of us. It must come from Christ. And the wonderfully good news is that He has accomplished all that we need. And this word of life then produces the signs of life. So this means that our assurance grows as we, number one, gain clarity in the gospel and learn to continually depend on His promises with all of our hearts, right? We depend on Him. That's abiding, that abiding language of 1 John. And it comes, number two, as we learn to become increasingly more obedient to Christ. That's where you could summarize this thing. And like we just said, one of the greatest signs of life is love. Right? Love for the church. We finished last semester with John exhorting us to love like we've been loved. You remember that? It's in end of chapter 3. He's called us there to love sacrificially, just like Christ has sacrificially loved us. So if you would look with me in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, by this we know love. Here's our, here's our standard that he laid down his life for us. Which chapter 3, 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, our laying down our lives looks like meeting practical needs. Little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. John wants us to apply this command to love very, very practically. Love in the church looks like taking an interest in other church members. It looks like getting to know them. It looks like understanding their burdens. It looks like meeting their needs. It looks like bearing up with them, being patient, doing what's best for them. It's intensely practical and difficult. We don't just say we love each other, John says. We must demonstrate it. We actually have to prove that we love each other by how we serve one another. How we make sacrifices for one another. How it costs us in our relationships with each other. Now, John knows that we're not perfect. Well, not yet at least. We're headed there. There's glory awaits us. Resurrection awaits us. We're new creatures in Christ right now, yes, but we're not fully redeemed. We don't have new bodies. So that means then, the implication of that, is that we're still going to struggle. It means that loving the church will be quite a challenge at times. It means we'll try to find excuses not to. It means that people loving us will be a challenge, right? Because we are not lovely all the time. It means that loving others will be costly. It will, be, it will cost us something to love others in the church. We often get hurt. And it's sobering to think about how it cost Christ his very life to love us. And he's called us to follow in his footsteps as we give ourselves away for others in the body. And John knows that it's hard, and I'm glad he does. Because it, he ends this passage with some incredible incentives. It, it's, he ends this chapter with some incredible incentives to do the hard work of loving the saints. Now, if this sounds familiar, we covered this last time, but we, we hit it in like two minutes. I'm going to spend the entire time tonight on these incentives because they're that good. All right? John spends the rest of this chapter detailing out the tremendous blessings, the benefits, we might say, that come into our lives personally when we give ourselves up in love for the church. So we'll call tonight the benefits of loving the church. 
the benefits of loving the church. If you would, just, just read this with me and we'll, we'll look at it together. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. And by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. So, in this passage, you probably heard them as we were reading it, John details out these benefits that come into our lives from, from loving the church. And we're, we could probably pull out more of them, but I'm going to kind of summarize it into four benefits. Four personal benefits that come from love. These are blessings that we gain when we love the church. And the reason I'm parking on this is because these benefits, okay, practical Christianity 101, all right, when the, when the biblical authors are giving us incentives, key in, all right, because we need them. Our hearts need them. This is the vision that we need in order to do the hard work of obedience. Okay? The benefits have to be at the forefront of our minds as we seek to love others because they're going to help us endure in our love and not grow weary. It's the motivational fuel to do the hard work of love. So I don't want to skip over them. And the first benefit is what we've already been talking about. It's the benefit of assurance. It's the benefit of assurance in the truth. That's what John says here. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth. So John says here that we're going to know that we're Christians. We're going to know that we belong to the truth. How? How are we going to know? He says, by this. Well, by what? What's he talking about? When you see this little phrase in 1 John, it'll pop up again and again, by this. You've got to decide if it's pointing backwards or forwards. Okay? It's either referring to something that came before it, or in this case, above it in your Bible, or after it, below it. And in this context, it's very clear he's talking about what he just said, back in verse 18, which was what? Loving others in our actions, practically, sacrificially. By this, by this practical love, he says, we will know that we are of the truth. So, the practice of love increases our assurance. You see that? So let's tease this out a little bit. Let's kind of show how this works in real time. Let's pretend one of your friends in Boundless says something about you behind your back, and it gets back to you. That never happens, right? Sometimes, sadly, it does. And you're hurt, naturally. You could leave the church, or you could leave Boundless for another area of the ministry. Or you could try to turn your friend group against that person. And especially if you don't like conflict, I mean, who who likes conflict, right? If you do, you're odd, probably. Um, If you don't like conflict, this may be an incredible temptation for you to just kind of bolt. You probably don't want to think hard about what would be most loving to that person who gossiped about you in that moment. Which means you need some incentives right now to do the hard work of love. Is that fair? 
What would happen if you took this little verse from 1 John, this one little clause, and you said, okay, something like this. Even though this is painful, I know this is a God-sent opportunity for me to love. And not just to love, but to grow in my assurance. If I do the hard thing here, if I try to have a conversation with this person, if I forgive them, I am loving them like Christ has loved me. And if I love them like that, then it's showing I am a real Christian. It's demonstrating that I really do believe the gospel. But if I don't, if I choose to ignore this and run from the problem, if I choose to seethe in unforgiveness, if I return gossip for gossip, I'm acting more like an unbeliever. And my grounds of assurance is drying up. And if I'm unwilling to forgive over the long haul, it may reveal that I don't really believe the gospel at all. So that incentivizes us, doesn't it? To get after doing the hard work of working through that issue. You feel the stakes rising. It's an incredible opportunity to confirm your assurance when you love the saints. You can know, you can really know that you're of the truth, not just kind of hope you're of the truth. You can know you are. Because you're believing what the Scriptures say and you're acting on that in faith. You don't have to wonder if the Lord knows you. What a tremendous blessing. That's number one. And this benefit of assurance leads to another tremendous benefit. And we're going to spend a lot of time here, so don't get get worried um, when I'm spending a lot of time on the second point, and there's four. Uh, We'll we'll go quickly through the the last two. All right? We'll call this next benefit um, reassurance amidst doubt. John says that this benefit that, that builds off assurances is a reassurance when we've sinned. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 19. The end of 19 here, second clause here. By this we shall know we are the truth, and, here it is, and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Now, John is teaching here that our practical acts of love, they don't, simply, they don't simply bring us assurance in the moment, as sweet as that is. It's a sweet benefit. But the pattern, the pattern of loving others will actually function to reassure us in the future when we need it the most, when we have sinned, when we've blown it, and when we are tempted to spiral in doubt about our salvation. Now this verse, just a warning, it has a lot of moving parts to it. All right? Meaning there's, just, there's a, lot of, a lot of things you've got to kind of nail down when you're trying to interpret what this verse means. You probably had questions even as we were reading it. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, I did too when I was studying it this week. But this is incredibly profound. So hang with me. We're going to break it down put it back together. All right? What's he talking about here? Notice initially in verse 20 that John foresees a time when he says, quote, our hearts condemn us. You see that? Verse 20? 
He's looking out and he's saying, okay, there's coming a time when our hearts condemn us. What does he mean? For John, when he says heart, he's referring not just to the organ, but to the part of a person that is most central to him or her. Most central. The heart is a place where thoughts happen, as well as plans. It's even a place where things are assessed and evaluated. It's all happening in the heart. The thoughts of the heart, the meditations of the heart, deliberations of the heart. The heart is doing all these things. And in the context here, he seems to be referring to a time when we have failed to love or even sinned in some other way. Conviction has set in, and so has guilt. And conviction and guilt are good and appropriate as long as we respond to them in the right way. But I want you to notice that here, John's language goes further than mere conviction. John says our hearts are not just convicted, but they are doing what? They're rendering a verdict. Our hearts are condemning us. Our hearts have weighed us and said, you're not a believer. How can you be a believer and act like that? What grounds do you have to assume that you know Christ? You're just presuming on His grace. I think that's what John means when he says our hearts don't convict us, but condemn us. Now, here's a little backdoor encouragement. I want you to notice something I, th- I think is, is encouraging in this passage. If, if your heart has ever said these kinds of things, I know mine has. If your heart's ever said these things, I think what's important to see is that, that he's talking about a believer here. He's talking about a believer. A believer's heart has the capacity to condemn him. As a young believer, I had tremendous struggles with assurance. Tremendous struggles with assurance. I'm talking like probably two years of off and on. Horrific struggles with assurance. Um, I was plagued. Because before I came to Christ, I thought I was saved for years and I lived however I wanted, and I was, if I would have died, I would have gone to hell. Completely false assurance. And so when I finally understood the gospel, when I finally repented, ironically, my heart was now sensitized to sin, and I doubted my salvation often in those early days. My heart was often condemning me. And yet, here's the encouragement. John is speaking to Christians in this text. I wish I would have seen this in the early days. Um, people, these people are people that he believes are the real deal in the Christian life. He even says a real Christian's heart can try to condemn him, and that's a very important observation for the Christian life. Because that means you're not you're way off track. This is, at some level, normative in the Christian life, according to John. He anticipates a time when his, the hearts of, of the believers are going to say this. And next, I want you to notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say in that moment, interestingly, that you need to repent. Well, we obviously need to repent of our failures to love and our, and our sin, but, but this, he doesn't say you need to repent of your hearts condemning you. He says your heart needs reassurance. 
He says your heart needs to be more literally persuaded. Persuaded. Reassurance. Again, that is super insightful because our hearts need to be persuaded by truth. That means your heart has rightly noted the guilt of your sin, but it has made the wrong judgment. Does that make sense? It's rightly noted the guilt of your sin, but it's made the wrong judgment. It's assessed you as an unbeliever. To say it differently, your heart needs to be renewed. It needs to be recalibrated. It needs a a persuading so that it can make the right assessment. So that raises another question. How do we reassure our hearts? Okay, so what's, what's going on there? So how does this happen? How do we persuade our hearts when, when our heart has made a wrong assessment? Well, John uses these same categories that he uses throughout the letter for assurance, right? The signs of life and the word of life. Both of them show up here. So they're kind of in reverse order. He kind of starts with the signs and then he gets back to the, to the gospel, the word of life. But notice in this context, he's saying that our, our practical acts of love They assure us and they reassure us. Right? So they assure us and they reassure us. So John would say that we reassure our hearts by not forgetting the fruit that God has already produced in our lives by His Spirit. We may have failed to love in this moment, but there have been other signs of life before this, other acts of love, and we have to remember them. When we're in the darkness of doubt, we've got to persuade our hearts by saying something like this. All right? Okay, heart. When I was dead, I had no capacity to love. All I did was I sought my self-interest. But God has opened my eyes to His love for me, and He has caused me to love others like He's loved me. Even if it's small, even if there's stops and starts, He's, he's begun that work. I've seen evidences of that in the past. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm definitely not who I once was. The Lord has been at work in me, and I'm going to remember that. Heart. Ultimately, we have to remember that those acts of love that came from faith, that did not come from you. Because new birth, even faith, is a gift from God. They came from the new life that God granted you, from His Spirit working in you. So, reassure your heart with maybe we could say past signs. Past signs of life. Because what happens is our hearts get myopic. They focus. We focus on the failure. And we compound the guilt. And so, what John does not want his sheep to do is is to forget all that God's done before this. But that's not all that John says about how we reassure our hearts. We don't simply look at our past acts of love, as important as that is. And, and, and this is very important that we don't miss this, because when our heart is, is firing off all kinds of condemnation, it is very hard to see anything the Lord's done in us. I don't know if you can resonate with that. I know that by experience. You kind of... It's very difficult. Just said our hearts are, are myopic in that way, and that just by the way, that's why we need each other. Uh, we need to be pointing out evidences of grace in each other's lives, um, coming alongside each other. Man, the Spirit is at work in you, brother, sister. So blessed by that. Like, you know, just pointing that out, noting that in each other, encouraging one another. 
Side note. So, so when it's hard to see stuff, when it's hard to even go back and remember those previous acts of love, there's something else that, that, we, that we do, that John says we do to reassure our hearts. In the rest of verse 20, John points us outside of ourselves and actually back away from ourselves to the God who is greater than our hearts and knows everything. These truths are the truths that we must remember when we're fighting doubt. Do you see that in verse 20? Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. So what does He mean here? You know, Again, another moving part to this verse. When John says that God is greater than our hearts, what he's getting at is that God is a more trustworthy assessor. Okay? God is, is a better assessor than our hearts are. Our hearts have that tunnel vision. They only focus on what supports their assessment, which is more and more of our sin. But God is the perfect assessor, and His judgments are far superior to the ones that our hearts make. And that's because he knows everything, John says. He has all the facts. Now, at first glance, you might be thinking, um, how's that comforting? Uh, how, how is that comforting that God knows it all? Um, I don't know half of what God knows about my sin. I don't know half of what my motives are. Not, my motives are often impure, and I only know a quarter of it. You're saying that God sees all that and that that's supposed to reassure my heart that I belong to Him? And I think John, if you were here, would be smiling at you right now and he would say, yes, beloved. How so? Because He's already assessed you. And His acceptance of you is not based on your merit. It isn't ultimately based on your obedience. It's based on his son's obedience. He's already taught us this back in chapter 2. John has already made this point back in chapter 2. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, stop looking at your sin. Look to him. He is the advocate. He is the propitiation. John taught us that that the believer will sin in this life. And when he does, he needs to remember that Christ stands as his advocate in his place. He stands as the completely righteous advocate, no less. And not only did he earn our righteousness and, and give it to us, but he died the death that we deserved. He was our wrath absorber, our propitiation. That's what that word means. And that means when, when, when our sin, all our sin, has already been punished. So do you see now how God's omniscience becomes one of the most encouraging truths to the doubter? God, the perfect assessor, the assessor of th th that's greater than your heart, He has assessed you as clean and righteous in Christ. And that means you'll never surprise Him by your sin. It's not a license to sin, but you won't surprise Him. He already knows it all. He's already paid for it all in Christ. Every wrong motive you've ever had or will have. 
And not only that, but he's all, he also doesn't ever miss any of the fruit that he himself has already produced in your life. He is not myopic. But he is the perfect assessor. He is far superior to your heart. So all this means then that reassuring our, our hearts is ultimately an act of faith. If you doubt, listen to this. Your doubt will only end. It will only end when you abandon yourself to the merciful assessment of God by faith. You won't be able to find enough fruit. It will only end when you abandon yourself to the merciful assessment of God by faith. When you say, God, you know all things. You know every motive of my heart. And you say that you forgive all who trust in you. I am abandoning myself to you. I am trusting you to be merciful to me, a sinner. And I'm choosing by faith to rest in your assessments alone. That's the only way that you can slay doubt. Because the fruit grows from that, right? The signs of life grow from that, faith. So, bringing it all back around, full circle, when we love others in the church, it's imperfect, I get it, but when we love others, John's teaching us that it brings blessing into our lives, we gain a growing assurance, and we also have evidence to reassure our hearts when we doubt. And then, once our hearts are tuned up, Once our hearts are in a place of humble submission to the Lord of love, we're freely receiving his love. Our hearts are regularly seeking to to love others in that way. Once that's happening, the blessings just keep pouring in. John gives us a third benefit in this text, and it's staggering. He says we have confidence in prayer. We have confidence in prayer. Look with me in verse 21. He says, Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, that's what we want. We don't want hearts just, our hearts out of tune all the time condemning us. If our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because, why? We keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. So John says the third benefit that we have when we consistently love the church is we have confidence in prayer. Confidence that we are heard and will receive what we pray for. Now that's some pretty tremendous incentive to get after loving the church, isn't it? Um, To do the hard work of, of love. So again, let's explore the details of these verses. Notice that that because we've renewed our hearts and are actively seeking to love. Our hearts are no longer firing off in this condemnation, right? Our hearts are renewed, we're resting in the mercy of God, and then we're seeking to progressively become better lovers of other people. Our hearts aren't firing off anymore. In other words, this confidence that John is is talking about, it comes about when our hearts are steadied by God's love for us 
and we're consistently bending out that love by faith. And that's when our confidence grows, John says. But, but what's the context of this confidence? What's he talking about? It's confidence before him. We have confidence when we're consciously in his presence in prayer. It's the context. The confidence John's talking about here is the confidence that God will answer our prayers. It's the confidence of a child that knows he's loved by his father. A confidence that the father has heard his son's requests. And I I was looking back through John uh, this week on some of these themes, and I was just really surprised, the Gospel of John. And I was um, encouraged uh, when I saw this theme pop up. Jesus was perfectly obedient, we know that. And one of the fruits of that was he knew that he was always heard by his Father. Always heard by his Father. John eleven forty two. 42. He says, Father, I know that you hear me. You always hear me. And he's praying for the, for the people that are going to watch him resurrect Lazarus from the dead. He had a confidence that he's always heard by the Father. And then he transferred that confidence to his own disciples, to the twelve. He, he also told his own disciples that they too have this incredible access to the Father through him. Alright? But answered prayer, get this, answered prayer is not automatic. It's not automatic. It's still connected to their faithfulness. Keep your finger in 1 John and turn over to John 15. I want you to see this in John 15. I'm not saying God never hears the prayer of a sinner because he obviously saves us when we have nothing to offer him. But the point is the long-term fruitfulness is not automatic in prayer. Long-term Answers to prayer come when some other condition is met. John 15. And what Jesus says here will give us insight into our passage in 1 John. So look down in, in John 15, 7. Jesus told his disciples, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. So what's the condition? To their answered prayers. Abiding, right? Abiding in Him. His words abiding in them. In other words, as they remain dependent on Jesus, abiding, as they seek to obey Him, His words being in them, meaning His words are, the, are actually inside of them, meaning it's, it's governing everything about them. You could say it's in their hearts. As those things are happening, it says, the Lord promises that, he, that, that God will fulfill their requests. Ask whatever you desire, whatever you wish. Because Jesus' words are the most formative thing in the disciple's heart. Jesus' words are informing his desires. So ask whatever you want. And I think another, another important thing to see, another observation that's really instructive about this text in John 15, is what these disciples then would be praying for. That God promises to just sort of lavishly answer. They're not asking God to fulfill their selfish desires. They're praying for something very specific. For fruit that glorifies the Father. Look at the very next verse in verse 8. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, 
and so prove to be my disciples. So he's saying, pray, and by this, God's going to be glorified when God bears fruit through your prayers. So what are they praying for? You put all that together. They're praying for fruit. They're praying for eternal fruit. We could say it like this. Because they are depending on Jesus and His words are governing their hearts, their greatest desire is for God to work eternal fruit through them. And Jesus tells them that they can be assured that God will answer those prayers. Now, if you turn back to 1 John, John is is transferring, which is super cool, he's transferring these promises to us. So you've got Jesus. He's confident that God hears him because of his obedience. He transfers that to his disciples, his 12. And now one of the 12, John, is transferring that to the church. He's saying the same is true of us today. The Lord will answer our prayers because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing to him. And that raises another question, right? Well, what are the commandments? Which ones in particular are we talking about? Well, John goes on to tell us, right? And it's, he actually he, he shifts it to the singular, commandment, singular, and then he gives us two things, <laughs> which shows that they're connected. It's the commandment, he says, to believe in Jesus and to love. The word of life, signs of life, right? Believe and love. Trust in Jesus and, and love. Receive his love and bend it out. That's the command. So this means that our practical love for others is tethered to answered prayer. Our obedience is tied to whether or not the Lord grants our petitions. Incentivizing. Now, if that sounds a little bit odd to you, like, what? Uh, It's kind of conflicting with some other categories in my mind. Um, maybe, you should, maybe we should think about how faith and obedience is, is tied to answered prayer. Let's just kind of work it out. And maybe we can, we can put it in the negative, all right? When we're not trusting Christ, when we're refusing to obey him, what's happening? Well, we're in essence trusting in something else, right? We're seeking to obey something else. And what's that called? called idolatry in the Bible. It's false worship. We're worshiping a false god. We have an idol in our hearts. And when we pray in that state of active idolatry, even as a believer, God is not going to grant that request. James 4 says that we ask God for things in prayer, but we don't receive them because we ask wrongly, he says. Wrongly, to spend it on our passions. Meaning, I got these idolatrous cravings in my heart, and I'm begging God to give me my idols. And God is too jealous for us to grant those requests. Those kind of prayers are not ultimately centered on requests for God to bear eternal fruit through us, they're centered on what we think we must have in order to survive. I like to think of them as like discontent, whiny prayers. You know? I'm going to have this. You know, kind of like my kids. They're just like, 
It's not this like humble request. It's, a, it's this making demands of, of God to give us what we want. And of course he's not going to answer that. Because James goes on to say the Lord is jealous for our worship. But when we entrust ourselves to Christ, here's how this comes into play. When we, when we love others, when, that, when that's our ultimate goal in obedience to him, and we're ready to kind of lay our lives down to be obedient, we're aligning ourselves with God and his will like nothing else can bring us into alignment. I mean, that is, you die to yourself to tr- in, in faith out of trust for what God said. That aligns you with, with him. That aligns us with, with truly worshiping Christ, praying to the Father through him. And what I want most in that moment is for his will to be done because I believe that his will is actually best. I don't know what's best, but he does. And so my prayers are centered on those promises, truths. And so I pray confidently for those things. But if I'm secretly idolizing something in my heart and I'm fervently praying that God would give me my idol, my heart is not in line with his. But the beauty of it is that John is promising that as we, as we line up, God will freely and abundantly grant our requests. And that is super encouraging. It's incentivizing to pray, and it's incentivizing to love so that our prayers will be heard. Answered prayer is an incredible benefit that comes to us when we love the church. It incentivizes us to love, even when it's hard. And just a practical example of this, just right out, right off, you know, right out of the top of my, off the front burner of my life. You know, I, I think, I think about this often in my marriage. Okay, so like if Mary and I are in a conflict, <gasps> yep, it happens sometimes. Uh, when we're in a conflict and I've sinned, and I'm tempted to ignore my sin in the conflict, the Lord often reminds me of 1 Peter three seven, which says my prayers will be hindered if I don't deal with this, if I don't live with her in an understanding way. Right? So, me refusing to deal with my sin, I'm idolizing something, right? I'm idolizing my comfort, whatever. So then if I try to go pray to God while I've got that idol in my heart, prayers are hindered. Okay? So I have to deal with that by faith. So instead of, of, of hiding that, I want God to make my life and my home and my ministry maximally fruitful for His glory. I don't want to be hindered in my prayers because I'm being stubbornly disobedient. So John says, if we seek to love the church, God will respond to our request with answers. So let me ask you, do you experience answered prayer? Better question. How diligently do you love the church? There may be a connection there. Well, there certainly is a connection there. And that leads us to our fourth and final benefit of this text. And it's a benefit that we've talked about a lot. So we'll be brief. John ends the paragraph by reminding us of something that we've already talked about. And he says that we learn to to love like Jesus. John says that we have increased intimacy with God. He's going to play on this abiding language again in verse 34. I'm sorry, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments, it's the commandments to believe and love, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And then he transitional verse here to the next paragraph. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. It kind of seems out of place, but he's, it's not. He's making a transition to the next paragraph. And the Spirit and love are very intertwined. 
We'll see that next time. But the point here is John saying that when we love the church, we confirm that we are in an abiding relationship with God and He with us. The implication of this language is that the relationship is reciprocal. The way He says it there, we are abiding in Him and He in us. This is sort of reciprocal and growing relationship. We're abiding in God and God in turn is abiding in us. We're going to experience more joy in in the abiding relationship as we learn to submit to Him and to love like He loves. And that's an incredible incentive when love's hard. So, again, just like tease this out. Let's pretend you have a roommate that's hard to love. All right? Don't look at them right now. Eyes, Eyes forward. You've just finished a long shift at your job. You got home about 10 minutes ago. You changed clothes. You got comfortable. Brewed you some coffee or tea. You sat down. Finally get to that book you've been trying to read for the last two weeks. Then in walks your roommate. You can tell she's been crying, and she walks to her room. You know she needs encouragement in the truth, but you also know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you. She's a talker. Eyes forward. In that moment, do you know that God is present and offering you an opportunity to grow in your relationship to Him? To grow in abiding with Him in that moment? God is offering you an opportunity to know Him more intimately as you learn to sacrifice yourself for her sake in that moment. As we offer ourselves to others for Christ's sake, He sees it. He draws near to you in it. And he will reward you for it. And when we, when we love in a costly way, when we love other people in a way that costs us something, we begin to learn, we begin, begin to learn something about what it cost him to love us. And what does that do? That just fuels our love for him all the more. So you can see then how when we love the church, It fuels our intimacy with God. And John lays this out here as as an absolute kind of concluding incentive for us to to lay our lives down for the good of the body. So, this is quite the benefits list. Um, When love is hard, when you're on the fence about being obedient to Christ, we've got to remember, you can't just, I mean, yeah, if you want to try harder, great, but try harder as you're remembering these incentives, right? It's the fuel that leads to our obedience. Remember that Christ wants to bless you in your obedience with these incredible benefits and allow the truth to motivate you to to persevere in loving each other. All right, let's pray. Father, we're we're thankful for, um, as I'm sitting here listening to how John so carefully and insightfully shepherds these saints I think about the wisdom that you gave him, and and all of that is just a flicker to how carefully and insightfully you shepherd us. And so we thank you. We thank you for giving us what we need before we know we need it. We thank you for incentivizing us to do something like love when when love should just spring out of us for all that you've done for us. And yet, um, you're patient. You come alongside us. You give us these benefits to help us see that this really is the better way. 
So help us believe it. Help us make sacrifices for one another. In Jesus' name.